states are recognizing that there needs to be more of a whole of state approach to cybersecurity. And really like the nation as a whole is recognizing there needs to be more of a whole of nation approaches. These local governments are not gonna be able to do it by themselves. Hello and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Norman Guadagno, Mimecast CMO and today's guest host. Every episode we're joined by a special visitor, or in this case visitors, who is definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity, to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Today is a special episode as we've invited three guests from the Center for Internet Security for a roundtable discussion. CIS is a community-driven nonprofit dedicated to making the connected world a safer place it develops, validates, and promotes timely best practice solutions that help people, businesses, and governments protect themselves against pervasive cyber threats. We're joined by Sean Atkinson, who is the CISO at CIS, Randy Rose, who is the Senior Director of Security Operations and Intelligence, and Karen Sarati, who heads up their Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or M-S-I-S-A-C, that's a mouthful. She's also the former New York State CISO. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it is a pleasure. Um, I just want to make sure that uh, we sort of get everyone grounded, and this is uh, you know an opportunity to dig in, but I'd love to ask you right at the beginning how you like to introduce yourself as a, at a party. And uh, I'll start with Karen. Sure. Thanks, Norman. So uh, my name is Karen Cerati, and I work for the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or MSISAC, as we like to call it. It is a not-for-profit dedicated to working with state, local, tribal, and territory governments to improve their cybersecurity. And as the Vice President for Member Engagement, I work on building relationships with our members to really understand what their needs are and their pain points are and then ensuring that our members are connected where they need to be um, and that they are getting value add from their participation in the MSISAC. Terrific. Thanks, Karen. And, mm-hmm. and Randy, how about you? Well, typically, I, I try not to talk too much about my job when I meet people at a party because it's <laughs> good, usually good just... strategy. I'm a big <laughs> fan of that. Yeah. And, you know, there's the security aspect, and then there's also the eyes glaze over aspect. So it's it's a little... Uh... <laughs> Very true. <laughs> But uh, I would say, generally speaking, you know, I I, I came up through, uh, you know, being an analyst and an instant responder. Uh, but these days, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to lead teams of of really intelligent, uh, really high speed individuals who are doing amazing work to help uh, under resourced communities do cybersecurity. So, like Karen mentioned, the state, local, tribal, and territorial communities they just don't have a lot of resources to do cybersecurity effectively. So they can come to the MSI SAC and get those services at no cost to them. And that's what my teams do. Awesome. How about you, Sean? Um, it is really assessing um, risk um, within our organization, being able to bring that to not only the operational level, but strategically and being able to understand our approach to managed security practice and following our own best practices uh, to implement uh, strength and security and uh, be assessing and utilizing the work of Karen and Randy to help enforce a, 
a capability in the space. So given it's a round table, um, we'll all cheers to that and uh, move on to the next question. <laughs> nah, ter terrific. And we will, uh, uh, this is too, a little too early in the day for this to be a <laughs> drinking episode of Fishy Business. But it is Friday. But if you'd like, I will, uh, for, at least for me, I don't know about the three of you, but it's a little too early in, on a Friday for me to be drinking uh, through this, but we will do drunk Fishy Business sometime in the future. Uh, you know, Sean, I want to pick up on, on you're just having talked about what you do. Maybe you could just quickly give us a, a little bit of the the history, origin, and and the, the sort of mission for CIS. Yeah, so CIS was um, really conceived in uh, 2000. Uh, now, this was a, a group of government and business luminaries that had come together at the uh, Cosmos Club in Washington, D.C. It was hosted by Ramon Barkeen. And mm -hmm. uh, they were looking at the threats that existed at that particular point in time, these vectors of attack against organizations using cyber, and it needed to be addressed. And they said, how are we going to do this um, in terms of where we are positioned? Ultimately, it was decided that there needed to be an independent nonprofit organization that had an underlying mission to address these threats appropriately. Because again, the reason I say luminaries is because they saw this attack vector in its, in its current state at that particular time, there was lower levels of sophistication. But now looking at where we are today, you could see that vision and look at where we are as an organization. I mean, we're an industry in terms of cybersecurity now. Yeah, thank, thanks for that background. And, and you said something that I can't leave untouched, which is, are we in any better shape today or are we in worse shape today than we were 20 years ago? I'm just wondering how you all think about that and what your perspective is. There are elements where we are better and there are elements where we have to think about the attacker-defender dilemma, right? We build a mousetrap. The attackers become more sophisticated, bypass that, so we create a greater mousetrap. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's this continuous effort of attack versus defense. And we're building great capability and, you know, at some point during this discussion, uh, we'll do some buzzword bingo and AI ML is going to come up, right? And we're getting to that point now where we want to use that type of technology to improve our sophistication. But obviously, the adversary is using the same technologies. And so it's now part of that piece is there's yeah. a really sophisticated mousetrap. And ultimately, there's legitimacy in terms of, yes, we're better. And uh, yes, we're more susceptible. And it's just... Uh, you know, those battles that we face together uh, as an organization, uh, as we combine capabilities and we build defense in depth, but there's also attacking in depth as well, where we've got industries and espionage and things of that nature, where there are levels of specialization for each layer of approach from both an attacker perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, I would say we, we we're definitely in a better space in terms of how we approach the cybersecurity problem. Um, Sean is right. It's, the, the attacks are continuous and they're ever evolving. So it's an industry where it's really hard to keep up. Mm -hmm. But we've we've made great strides in terms of how we collaborate with one another. So, you know, if I think back to 20 years ago, you know, people didn't want to share if they had um, a cyber incident um, right. and they didn't want to talk about what happened to them. And everyone was really siloed. So um, there's been a lot of growth in that area. And I think we're getting to a really good space where there's a lot of sharing between different levels of government and then between the public and the private sector as well, which will, which will um, inevitably just make us all stronger. 
Um, and that includes like international um, information sharing and intelligence sharing. So I think that's going to be helpful. The threats keep changing. So, mm-hmm. you know, as Sean says, we're, we're always trying to keep up and that's challenging. And for me, I think one of our greatest threats right now is that we don't have enough people working in this space. There's not enough cybersecurity professionals to keep up with um, with these changing threats. So that's an area that we really, um, as a group, as an industry, need to focus on and um, you know try to try to address. Uh, I definitely want to come back to that point, uh, Randy. I'd love to get your take on you know where we are and where we've been. Yeah, I don't usually say this in a panel type discussion, but I actually agree with uh, everything that the other two just said. Uh, so Sean and Karen are spot on. But I think that the one thing I might be able to add too is that you know 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you know our, the leaders in a lot of organizations just weren't sold on spending resources towards cybersecurity. And I think today, the average leader, whether technical or not, understands the risks to their business from cybersecurity threats. So I think we're in a better place in the in that we're not from a cultural perspective in inside businesses, inside government, we're not having to sell cybersecurity as a concept anymore. So I think that and it's taken a long time. I mean, literally 15, 20 years in the making. If you think about it, even just terminology, 20 years ago, cybersecurity wasn't even a term really, right? We some people called it data security, some called it information security. CIS obviously used, you know, the phrase internet security, but cybersecurity really grew as a concept over the years. And I think we're in a position now where the words that the cybersecurity community are using, a lot of those words, we still have a lot of our own kind of weird language, but a lot of the words that we use Mm -hmm. are commonplace in the lexicon, in the business lexicon, right? We're not having to explain to board members what ransomware is, right? They recognize that, they understand the threats to that. And it's not a zero sum game anymore where if I spend money in this area, it means I'm taking away from something else. They recognize, no, if I invest in cybersecurity, I'm actually protecting my overall bottom line. Yeah. And I, so I think we are in a better place as far as, as that goes. And I think we're getting better. I think we're going to continue. We are an attractive field to get into. A lot of um, younger folks are really interested in the flexibility that the cybersecurity space offers. Um, they're interested in the fact that um, cybersecurity is a is a, as a field. It's a, it's a complex and evolving field that involves new challenges every day. So I think that's, you know, something that's very attractive to, to young people who are, who are gamers, who are interested in solving puzzles. And so I think we're gonna get better as a community as we can continue to move on. One of the areas I, th- I think we're still woefully behind is from a, you know, policy perspective. I think mm-hmm. you know, our, our government generally is, is slow on the uptake. And uh, when it comes to cybersecurity policy, it's an area where we continue to struggle. There really aren't a lot of technical experts in Congress, for example. So. You know, it's it's going to be slow to to get the right policies in place so that we can have more sweeping changes. You know, that uh, will broadly impact the community. Uh, something else you said, uh, Randy, that is interesting, and and you know, since you touched on on governments uh, and the role that they can play, I know that uh, I I had that big mouthful earlier about the multi-state information sharing and analysis center uh, of which uh, Karen leads, and I wonder. If maybe you could, Karen, give me just a quick overview on that. Uh, what is it and, and how does it work in the context of, of the U.S.? MSISAC actually, it started as a program in New York State about 20 years ago. And then in 2010, it came under the umbrella of the Center for Internet Security. So it really started, much like Center for Internet Security, as a grassroots effort among mm-hmm. a number of state CISOs who, who really saw that need for cyber threat information sharing. You know, what was happening in one state 
um, had the potential to be happening in, in, in another or was happening in another. And, and that need for really collaborating around um, best practices. We have matured and grown considerably and, and are now designated by the federal government as a central resource for cyber threat prevention, protection, response and recovery for all U.S. states, local governments, tribes and territories. So that encompasses a large number of organizations, but we do offer no and low cost resources and services for our members. In a nutshell, there's a lot of different stuff that we offer, but in a nutshell, we have a 24 by 7 um, by 365 security operations center that gives mm -hmm. real-time monitoring. We have a cyber threat intelligence group that issues threat warnings um, and intelligence products, a cyber incident response team that's available to our member organizations that can help provide them with incident response services. They're all SLTT, state, local, tribal, territory focused mm -hmm. um, and can provide those capabilities to members who either don't have them or need some kind of augmentation for the, the staffing that they do have. We also administer the Nationwide Cybersecurity Review, which is an annual uh, self-assessment designed to evaluate an organization's maturity. And then those anonymized results from those assessments are provided to Congress to A, raise awareness and, and B, assist with um, future funding initiatives, such as the, the, the recent state and local cybersecurity grant program. So gives them an idea of where um, governments are struggling. Does beg the question that I have to ask around election security, because mm -hmm. it's it's been a hot topic. I know you provide resources around yeah. that. I uh, would love to get a little perspective for our listeners on just the reality of election security and election threats from from experts such as yourself. So so I'll say in addition to the MSI SAC, uh, the Center for Internet Security also hosts hosts the Election Infrastructure ISAC, um, which is solely focused on on the elections um, election community. So we all of the resources that we offer to the other state, local, tribal and territory entities are offered to election offices as well. They are part of government. We, again, have um, we are focused on the threats that are impacting elections. We do situational rooms whenever there is an, a big election going on. We have uh, a number of staff on Randy's team that I think are focused on specific election threats. Mm -hmm. um, so we are we are doing a lot of work in that area. I'll add a couple things too, just kind of going back to your original question, Norman, too, about the ISAC. So the ISAC construct really goes all the way back to 1998 um, with the presidential decision directive 63. So under President Clinton at the time, there was this directive that was put in place that where the federal government recognized they needed to do more in this in this critical infrastructure space, but that mm -hmm. critical infrastructure, that the private critical infrastructure firms were not likely to just share information with the federal government, right? So they had to come up with some other mechanism where they could get information into this community and the community could work with each other. And then anonymized information could make its way up from a national security risk management standpoint, could make its way into the federal government so they could make better decisions. And that's really the the kind of the crux of the ISAC model. And the MSISAC wasn't the first uh, to, to be built out, but we when MSISAC was formed, it was really formed looking at the other ISACs and said, look, we're not getting the information that we need. Um, and we're and, you know, as a community, the states as a community aren't getting that. So we should follow this same model. And what Karen was talking about elections, if you use a broad brush, you can say elections happen at the county level in the U.S. There are a few exceptions to that. But generally speaking, you know, elections occur at the county government level. So obviously county governments or local governments. Yeah. So the same, you know, benefits that. Yep. 
that they get through the MSI SAC, elections organizations would get the same. And we do we do focus specifically on elections because, you know, it's it is kind of a unique space. And in and of itself, it's it's not actually identified as a critical infrastructure sector in and of itself. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, like election or I'm sorry, like uh, electricity or communications or transportation. They're all called out kind of unique uh, specifically. But, but, uh, but just to clarify then, so we as a U.S. government don't consider elections critical infrastructure. We, we do. Okay. It's do. it's not it's not called out as its own sector. It's actually kind of a spread out across a couple different uh, infrastructure. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. I was hoping right. elections were critical. Um, oh, it's absolutely critical. Clarifying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely critical. I guess I'm one more question and then I'll sort of shift a little bit, but I do want to take one click down on this. At the local level, cities, counties, even the state, how prioritized is cybersecurity to those local level? Or is it something that they're thinking about at the local level on a regular basis? It's definitely a priority in, in local governments. They're probably not as far ahead in terms of acceptance by, you know, the decision makers as states are, but they are certainly getting there. As Randy said, the business is, is, is starting to understand cybersecurity and how it protects everything that they do. One thing that, that we're seeing is that states are recognizing that there needs to be more of a whole of state approach to cybersecurity. And really, the nation as a whole is recognizing there needs to be more of a whole of nation approaches. These local governments are not going to be able to do it by themselves. Some of them, the person that's in charge of cyber is also in charge of all of IT. They're the county clerk. They also are in charge of, you know, mowing the lawns, everything. So um, they need help. States are starting to recognize that and building whole of state programs where the state can offer services, cybersecurity services that the locals can take advantage of. It's part of our mission. I think um, what either Randy or Sean mentioned before, the, the cyber underserved, that's who we focus on, trying to make sure that they get the resources that they need because they definitely need help in terms of growing their program and growing their maturity. So that's super informative. And I, I know, Karen, you were the CISO in New York State previously. And uh, yeah, maybe just touch briefly on what does the CISO of a state <laughs> focus on? So many things. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I, that they, that's true of every CISO. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a challenging position, um, but it can also be a really rewarding position because you're you have the opportunity to protect so many services that you're the citizens are dependent on things like, you know, you're protecting the taxes, the, um, social services, healthcare, labor, all of those things. No two days are going to be the same as a state CISO. You never know what you're going to be walking into. You know, we've talked about how in cyber there's constant attacks going on and they're constantly evolving. So it's challenging in terms of, you know, you often feel like you're taking one step forward and two steps back or that you're like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill and it keeps rolling down. But if you pause and and, and take a look back at how far you've come. It can be a very satisfying job. The state's CISO community, there's only 50 people with the same job, you know, in the, in the entire world is a really tight-knit community. We really relied on one another and they continue to rely on one another in terms of bringing each other up so that, you know, rising tide floats all boats kind of thing. So challenging, but you'll be involved in a lot of different things. You'll have an opportunity to learn a lot of different areas of business and have opportunity to explain to the business areas why cyber is important to what they do and foundational in terms of what they do. I said it can be very rewarding as well. And I think people probably don't recognize too that when you're a state CISO, you're, it's not like you have one position. You're really representing all these different organizations. This state works similar to, especially a state like New York, works similar to the federal government in that there are, are a whole bunch of executive agencies 
that fall under the responsibility of the state. And they all have their own unique infrastructure. They have their own, not just on the technical side, but on the business side. So the Department of Labor has very specific business things that they have to do, business decisions that they have to make. And that impacts their IT and their cybersecurity posture. And then you go over to Workers' Compensation Board and they have their own set of regulations and own set of policies. And then you have public health and the Department of Education. And I mean, there's just at least 20, I would think more. We had 62, I think, agencies within New York State. Wow. Which yeah, is an, and- that's an insane workload. I mean, just to, just to <laughs> partition your brain in 60 different ways, right? I just think about like that. And that there's 50 people in the country that are facing that exact same problem. Yeah, that's super, super fascinating. You know, Sean, you're the, the sister at CIS. What's unique about that role in the context of being an organization that serves the cybersecurity community? How do you think about your role? It's very complex in terms of aligning the visions of respective departments. And if Karen had 62, then I'm going to have to say I've got 63. (laughs) 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 Wow, a little bit of of competition going on. (laughs) No, no idea that. But the element is this, is when we look at our own best practices and we look at integration with MSISEC and EIISEC and those elements is, you know, we want to be really the beta testers of the new elements coming out from the organizations. It's constant innovation. You know, in my role, you got to think down the hallway, I get to go talk to a state CISO, right, and call Karen a friend. And, you know, we're a consumer of elements of the MSI SEC services. And so we get that intel threat intelligence, work with the CERT team, get the SOC monitoring and You know, having that on your doorstep, it's fantastic. But then with our security best practices side of the house, you know, with our benchmarks, our CIS controls and and those elements, it's using those to show the business use case of how they can be applied and advocating for that, right? Evangelizing the approach that we're taking in order to uh, address the cyber threats. Uh, And I know that you are big believers in the tabletop exercise model, uh, help Help me understand really how you've sort of optimized the tabletop and and how you see it playing a key role in security. Oh, absolutely. I'm a big tabletopper. Uh, I love uh, a good uh, practiced exercise and, you know, emulated simulation in this space. So it's the way I framed uh, and the way I work with tabletop exercises in the organization is to, uh, you, you know, you really bring people into the room for a round table and, you know, throw scenarios and see what comes out. What, what's our current practice? How are we going to do this under uh, an element that I call uh, volume and scale? So mm-hmm. it will address, I've not seen this before. What's our response in this space? And, you know, continuous practice. We do this on a quarterly basis. Um, we've been going through several phases of a different approach of uh, blue team versus red team to really combine to purple teaming exercises. Uh, And so Randy and his team have been absolutely phenomenal in applying technical approaches in this space. And it's the evolution as well. We started, um, you know, really procedurally in terms of our approach. And then we started to break up separate teams and hold those on different cadences and really then start to now practice um, those respective procedural controls uh, as live fire exercises and uh, really starting to and the way I put it, uh, Norman, and it's not meant to uh, be this element, but is to stress the team in respective areas. Right. Practice this. It, it's, you know, it's not, uh, oh, it's a day where we can sit back, relax, and just chat about these elements. It's, no, we've got to be in the kind of that frame of mind 
Uh, and what the tabletop does is uh, really start to approach um, how we're supposed to manage when we're under levels of stress due to volume and scale. That's one of the elements that I try to uh, bring to these. It's not a, uh, oh, we get a free lunch, you know, halfway through these exercises type of approach. It's, right. oh, we man. don't get a free lunch. Yeah, we, we do <laughs> <laughs> you do get a free lunch, but it's, it's not something you're necessarily going to enjoy. Exactly. Exactly. I would, yeah. Sean, just, I, I would say we're, we're probably at a, at a point where we're even doing it more than, than just once a quarter, especially as we've broken it out now to, you know, we, when we, we started with this once a quarter concept and we were looking at the whole of CIS tabletop exercises, we had people from literally being pulled from every team in the organization. And we continue to do that uh, once a quarter model, but now we've broken into smaller teams that are, that are tabletopping their own specific uh, programs mm -hmm. with the people that they need to have involved. So we have one that's uh, this, this constructor on this emergency call center. If a, if a crisis happens uh, in the SLTT community, and we need to take an all hands on deck approach. We're not going to be able, we're going to have to take the, the technical experts from our security operations center and actually have them doing more analysis so they can't necessarily be manning the phones. Well, who can man the phones? So we're pulling all these people from other departments to say, you're going to be you know, helping to triage through this call center. And so we don't have to have the entire organization, just the people that are on the roster for the call center. But I, but I think one of the things that's different about the way that we do TTX is which is our nomenclature for tabletop exercise. So the way we do, and there's always a good abbreviation. <laughs> <laughs> the way we do TTX is a lot of it. So a lot of our folks, you know, have military backgrounds, uh, and the the TTX model is big in the in the DoD community, the Department of Defense and military community. So we're bringing a lot of expertise in from people who've done this, either working for the NSA or working for the you know the Navy or different uh, elements of the Department of Defense. And so we're constantly evolving, but we're also bringing in people that aren't necessarily involved in every situation. We're bringing mm -hmm. in these outside perspectives. And I think that's the key. We're actually CIS as an organization all, from our CEO, John Gilligan down said, we're gonna dedicate resources to learning and development, to training and awareness, to, to going right. through these exercises, because it's so important that, that we know what we're gonna do in a crisis. Because the, the community is depending on us. This is not just a CIS crisis. This is a crisis for the community. So we need to have people who have run these drills over and over and over again. What are you seeing as something that that your uh, you know network are, are really confronted with at this moment? I, I think you know really looking at the the SLTT community, um, ransomware continues to be the the most impactful threat. It's not the the most common threat that we see necessarily, you know, mm -hmm. we, we do see tons the phishing is, you know, the number one intrusion vector, but we, yep. that, it doesn't always lead to a ransomware attack, but in terms of raw impact on the SLTT community, ransomware is by far the, the most impactful. And it's not just because of the ransoms, the ransoms are increasing. We saw just, you know, from the, the end of 2021 to the end of 2022, we saw the average, not the, sorry, not the average ransom, the highest ransom that we were tracking in the SLTT community jumped from about 250,000 to a $2 million uh, wow. ransom demand. Yeah, wow. so that, that's incredible. So, you know, when we're looking at uh, 
at those kinds of numbers, I mean, that's that's huge. That's just on the ransom paid piece, but the average cost for a small to medium-sized organization to recover from a ransomware attack has also jumped significantly, in part probably through, you know, because of uh, rising cost of cyber insurance and some of the requirements related to cyber insurance, uh, but also just data recovery, double extortion attacks from ransomware actors where they're, they're actually exfiltrating data from networks prior to launching the ransomware. So if you refuse to pay the ransomware, then they, they come at you a second time. It, actually, even in some cases where organizations do pay the ransom, I think I said pay the ransomware, pay the ransom. And organizations where uh, they do pay the, the ransom, sometimes those organizations are also getting hit with double extortion. Well, the, it's the good old days where they said they won't be back or not yeah, with us anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there's actually a high percentage of reinfections too in the ransomware community. Well, I said ransomware community, the community of, or, of people who've been hit by ransomware. It's actually a high, very high percentage of reinfection, which is unfortunate. But I mean, the average cost to recover from these is, you know, several million dollars, three, four million dollars, depending on the size of the organization. So I mean, it, it's just it, massive. It, it is really tricky. Karen, Sean, other thoughts on what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think... In terms of governments, again, they have they are a treasure trove of data that's that's uh, very useful to attackers. There's a lot of identity information that um, absolutely that um, attackers are after. So um, the phishing attacks are going to always be our, our highest. I think our highest number of attacks. So that's you know why security um, and user awareness training is is very important, helping them to try to spot those. Although they're getting much more difficult to spot. When I was in New York, the the number of attacks against identities and um, and then using those identities, stolen identities, to perpetuate fraud in government. So filing somebody else's taxes or filing some um, someone else's unemployment claims um, or the social services claims that came with the pandemic uh, was absolutely huge. Yeah. So um, I, that's I, always I, a challenge. I, 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 was, I was a victim of someone trying to file uh, on my behalf, right? So it's it affects everyone. And uh, thanks for calling that out because people don't realize how much information governments store about us. And if it gets compromised, it puts citizens at risk that they may not even realize. Uh, we're bringing this in for a close because even though I could spend all of our time and um, we will schedule that after hours drinking episode, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd love to uh, uh, just wind up with a couple, three quick questions. And uh, Sean, I'll start with you. What should people be looking for in the year ahead? What are the, some of the things they should be paying attention to? I think ultimately there are elements, and again, I'll throw the buzzword bingo in because uh, I needed to. Uh, I need to get my bingo here. Is the AIML capabilities, both attack and defense, uh, need to be considered as part of uh, any um, security program and investment? Ultimately, over time, uh, really in the next two years, uh, you know, I see a lot of capabilities. Again, one of the huge parts of this, and Randy had touched on it, is um, Awareness across the organization, so where its executives are more informed of uh, cybersecurity. And that's why one of the reasons I think ransomware is so pervasive, because it does change a technology into money, right? There is a dollar amount that's involved. And I think that's one of the key elements here is, uh, again, communication. Uh, and obviously, Norman, you you understand from from your perspective is communicating through the top level of the organization down, but also bottom up in terms right. of uh, gaps and uh, really terms of resiliency and where that investment should be. And uh, so I think it's a risk-based decision process that uh, people need to consider 
uh, and hear it from both sides. Uh, and, you know, as Rand Randy mentioned with those tabletop exercises, with bringing different people and perspectives into the organization, into those venues, they have a voice, right? Everybody's equal part in a tabletop exercise. Absolutely. But it should also be within an organization to voice concern or voice questions that need to be answered. Um, and, uh, you know, to challenge cybersecurity leadership, to be able to answer those questions, not from a technical perspective, but also a business perspective. That's terrific. Karen, let me ask you a, a different question, uh, given your role and, and given your background. What do you think citizens should care about when they, when they interact with, with their state, local government? How should they to have a dialogue with the government, with elected representatives around cyber issues? Well, I think it's important for citizens to understand what types of protections uh, are available for their data. And there's different, you know, in different um, states, different localities, there's there's laws around that where you need mm -hmm. to, you know, post post what that is. So I think what's important for citizens is before you, before you give up um, your personal information, understand how it's going to be used and how it's going to be protected, um, which is critical for them. Yeah, terrific, and and I agree completely. Uh, the this is truly where an informed citizenry matters because absolutely, if you're not informed, uh, things will happen without your control. Uh, Randy, let me uh, let me ask you a little bit different question. Uh, if I were a someone coming out of college right now, what's the one thing I should know if I wanted to go into the cybersecurity space? That is a great question. So I think different organizations, have, you know, obviously they're gonna have different hiring practices, but I always encourage folks that are interested in the field to one, study up on, on whatever they can. You don't have to have a degree in cybersecurity to get into the cybersecurity field. Just take whatever, you know, job you can get to get in a help desk position, some, you know, yeah. low-level analyst position. But to get that position, you you essentially have to really sell yourself. And most organizations will hire you for the things they can't train you in and then train you in the things they can, which usually translates to be uh, have good soft skills and show those soft skills in the interview. I can't teach somebody to be passionate about this job. I can't teach somebody to be motivated and driven. I can't teach somebody to be a problem solver. You either have that or you don't. Right. But those are the kinds of people that we want to bring onto our team because I can train you how to read packets. Mm -hmm. I can train you how to do malware analysis, but I can't train you to care. So right. if you walk in the door with that attitude, a positive attitude, I want to do this. I want to be part of this field. I'm driven. I'm motivated. I'm hungry to help. Those are the things that, that help sell yourself in an interview. Those are the things that will leave a difference. Right. At the end of the day, an interviewer is trying to bring people onto their team that they want to work with. So be somebody that people want to work with. Such great advice, uh, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, all right, as we bring this into final uh, close here, where can people find out more information about CIS? This is obviously a pop quiz. Which of you will respond first? CISecurity.org. CISecurity.org. Phonetically, charlieindiasecurity.org. And I think everyone should check it out. It's a treasure trove of resources and obviously incredibly talented people who uh, I found an absolute pleasure to talk with. I'd have, I suspect I'd have great fun at a tabletop exercise with any of you and um, look forward to future opportunities to connect. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being here. 
And I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed. I'm Norman Guadagno, CMO at Mimecast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>